0: All right, friends, if you will please open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32 is where we are at this morning as we're trekking along in our reading guide as we're moving through the Bible seeing God's story of redemption unfold and of his revealing of himself to make himself known uh, in the hearts of man and among the nations. Last week, I believe, Brother Joe led you through what is a tremendous story in Numbers chapter 21 uh, of the Lord sending judgment into the camp in the form of snakes, but then also providing a place for them to look, a, a source of salvation By looking to the serpent fixed on a staff. And now we ourselves look firmly to the cross of Christ and there find salvation ourselves. When I was younger, uh, there were a couple of times. That my uncle took me out to uh, Barksdale Air Force Base uh, where he worked and he still works uh, on B-52s. It's the the largest bomber uh, that our Air Force has, right? So this massive wingspan, uh, capable of carrying incredible loads of ordnance, um, and just they're just incredible machines, right? So one of the things that always fascinated me about these planes was something that is. Actually actually common to any plane that you ever ride on or see, and that's the flaps, right? And so you have here this absolutely massive plane, just an incredible wingspan, and uh, carrying this massive payload, and what is it that moves it? These tiny little flaps on the back of each wing and on the back of the tail, Now, compared to you or I, obviously, these flaps are pretty large, but for the device that it's steering, they're pretty small. Now, I tell you all of that because uh, I want you to think about this principle of what controls you. This small little thing controls this incredibly large aircraft carrying all this weight that helps get it off the ground, that helps steer it through the air, get it to its destination, to do its assigned task. And as we consider and look to God's Word this morning, what I want to consider is that same principle of what controls you, what steers you, what drives you. Because when you're going about your day, when you're, when you're talking to your wife, when you're talking to your brother, your sister, uh, what, what guides you? What guides that speech, that conversation? What determines how you're going to treat that person or address that person? When issues pop up in your life and you have to decide, you have to make decisions on how you're going to go about addressing those things or um, commandeering those things, what, what steers you? When you're talking to the guy or the gal at the grocery store, what guides that conversation? What guides how you view that person? when you have a decision to make about uh, when, you're, when you're dreaming about what's next in life, what shapes, what moves, what steers that decision. I want each of us to be challenged this morning to set God's word, his ways, and his spirit as the intentional standard that drives our lives. This morning as we're looking at uh, what is, to me, one of the more intriguing and fascinating stories in the book of Numbers, we're going to be challenged in just that way. Now, as many of you know, Numbers is a pretty unique book, it has large sections that seem to drag on because they're filled with just that, Numbers, right? However, there are many areas here in the book of Numbers that have unique stories that reveal a lot about the nature of man and God's standard of worship, obedience, and repentance. And I love this story that we're looking at this morning because uh, what is seemingly a benign interaction here between Moses and the tribes of Reuben and Gad is actually the perfect microcosm of how the sin in our hearts causes us to rationalize and justify disobedience. And how... Oftentimes, what the magnifying glass that this story reveals, how often we allow our own selfish desires to be that which drives and directs our life, rather than that which God has said is true and right. So with that in mind, let's look to God's word. We're going to look to Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32, and I'll ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. And we're going to look at this story in a little bit of a different way. Our, this beginning verse that we're going to read is verses 20 through 23. And then we're going to circle back and walk our way back to that point. All right. So verses 20 through 23 are what we're going to read together now. So Numbers chapter 32, verses 20 through 23. So Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, And every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord. Then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word, seeking for it to guide us, to drive us, to edify us, that we may walk in obedience to it, I pray that you would bless this gathering, bless this time, bless the reading and study of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us here to do a a true, authentic self-analysis, to examine what it is that motivates even the most benign interactions and actions within our day, from those to, to what it is that motivates the most important things, what we dream about, the next parts of life being, how we shepherd and parent our children, God, help us to see all of that and help us to do it in light of your truth. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, I was not, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I was not with you last week. I'd like to provide us a little bit of context. Uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page here. Uh, you may or may not be reading along with us in the Bible reading plan. And so I just want to make sure we're we're all on the same track. So as to the, the overall context uh, and content of the book of Numbers and exactly what brings us to this story, right? So uh, our English title for the book of Numbers actually comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and uh, it is in reference to the census that we see taken in chapters 1 through 4 and chapters 26 of Numbers. And so, therefore, we get the title for the book of Numbers, right? Uh, but perhaps a more telling title for the book is the Hebrew title, which is Bamidbar which means in the wilderness. So as we consider our text today and everything that's happened up to this point, we see exactly that, that the Lord in the book of Numbers is leading the people through the wilderness. And he has a detailed telling of those events in the wilderness. And so why might this be important? And why might this be important to consider in light of our story and our text this morning? Because it shows the painful and slow process of two simultaneous things first the people are in the wilderness as a result of god's judgment of their blatant sinfulness and we'll get to exactly kind of the unfolding of those events here just a little later on as we unpack our text for this morning and second thing that the overall context of the book of numbers shows is this that in his judgment god is also sanctifying them to enter The Promised Land in fulfillment of his covenant promises to Abraham. And so, not only has he sentenced them to wander in the wilderness, but he has given them his very presence to lead them in that wandering. And the purpose of that judgment and that wandering is to sharpen them, to shape them, to mold them, so that as he leads them from the wilderness to once again to the borders of the Promised Land. That they will be ready to enter it and make his name known. So, one of the major themes which Numbers provides and has to do with is the depravity of the human heart. How did they get to having to be in the wilderness? And then, what does that look like as they go through it? And we see this issue time and time again of rebellion and disobedience. And that brings me to the first point there on your outline. Hopefully you grabbed one this morning. And that is that our hearts find content in self-fulfillment. Our hearts find content in self-fulfillment. Which means that our hearts feel safe. They feel at home. They feel at ease. They feel satisfied when we are fulfilling whatever selfish desires we can conjure. And this is what is natural to us. So that is why our hearts feel so comfortable in doing that. Meaning that we don't even have to think about it. And this is what motivates. This is what drives. This is what determines our days. How am I going to fulfill the desires of this heart right here? Without thinking about it, without even determining it, that is what motivates us. Which is why we must, as believers, as those who submit to the authority of God and and the work of Christ on the cross, must be consistently aware of this reality. We must be cautious with contentment and grow uncomfortable with being comfortable. This is what this means, that when we find ourselves in a situation in which we feel at ease in this world, at home, when we feel like we're trying to make our home here and we want to to do this or that that aligns us with the culture in this way or that way, we must beware. We must cautiously challenge ourselves to look beyond ourselves when we feel comfortable in this world. Because when we find ourselves all too content with the choices that we are making, When we find ourselves all too content with the life that we are imagining, we're setting ourselves up for failure. The number one telltale sign that we are content with self-fulfillment is when all of our plans and actions and thoughts are focused squarely on what makes us feel happy. Consider that for a moment. All of those I listed uh, earlier in, in my introduction, just several interactions, several areas of life in which we have relationships, parenting, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, grandparents, uncles, aunts, or or just even just our our conversations at the grocery store, or what I'm going to do this day or that day, or how I'm going to treat this person or that person based off what they've done to me. What drives those interactions, folks? What steers how you go about your day? What will bring us joy? What will bring us happiness? What will bring us fulfillment? When this happens, you can be sure that you are walking down a path that you are forging of your own desire rather than the well-lit path of God's truth. I was talking to a young person just the other day all about the, the plans that they were making, the thoughts that they had, the things that they wanted to do. And uh, you know I, I can't wait to do this or that. I, I can't wait till I get to this stage or that stage of life. And I had to stop and say, now, wait a minute, I'm hearing a lot of I, me, and my. Have you considered whether or not this is the Lord's will? Because here's the scary thing. We, he will allow us to walk that path of self-fulfillment. And our prayer and our hope is that He will use that for the purpose of humbling ourselves like the prodigal son and drawing us back to Himself. This is too often the path that we see ourselves taking when we consider the things going on in our lives. The first place that we defer to is our own heart and our own self-fulfillment. And this is what brings us to this story. I want you to go back to verse 1 there of chapter 32. Because here we see the next point that I want to show us is a key contributing factor to indulging in this contentment of the flesh. And we see here in verse 1, Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. So this is, again, we started in verses 20 through 23, right? So this is kind of Moses' address to Reuben and Gad. And now we're seeing, okay, how did we get to what Moses was saying there? Now, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jezreel and the land of Gilead. And behold, the place, uh, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came, to Mo, came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest, so Aaron has passed away at this point, if you're tracking along, and now Eleazar has been elevated to priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Adaroth, Debon, Jazir, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elela, Sabom, Nebo, and beyond. The land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, "If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan." So this is the, the situation that's been set up for us, right? So Reuben and Gad, we say, uh, we see there um, they they have a great number of livestock. They look at this land that they have just conquered after defeating the kings of Og and Bashan, and they say to themselves, "Wow, we've got livestock." this land is perfect for grazing. It looks good. It's great for livestock. So they say to like, why do we need to go beyond the Jordan? Why do we need to go and have war and, and, and worry about? We heard the original report of the spies way back when. Like they said, that place was going to be real hard to take over. We've got livestock. This place right here is good. Why do we need to go over there where we're being led? And so... We see there uh, in verse 2, the people of Gad and the people of Reuben come to Moses and to Eleazar. So uh, interesting thing here we have, first we're told it's Reuben and Gad, and now we see Gad and Reuben. So apparently Gad was the one that was more gabby and ready ready and eager to to bring this petition to Moses, right? And so they come to Moses and Eleazar and the chiefs of the congregation. They're like, look, it's clear as day. We've got lots of livestock and this land right here, it's great. Please, uh, if, it be, if, it, if we find favor in your side, let this land be given to your servants. Don't take us across the joy. And so, the next thing that I want to get us to is there that you see on your outline. I want to show us three signs that we have compromised truth for self fulfillment. Three things that we can identify in our own life that if we see these things, if we see ourselves indulging in these things, we can realize that we have compromised truth for self-fulfillment, that we're willing to say, truth be done away with, whatever is satisfying to me, whatever I think is best is what is good. So verse one there, we've already looked at. The uh, people of Reuben, people of Gad, very great number of livestock, they saw the land of Jazeera, the land of Gilead. Behold, the place was a place for livestock. So here we see these tribes, they conspire to remain in the land that the Lord was leading them out of and to not take the promised land which the Lord has specifically covenanted with Abraham as the place where he will set his people and fulfill his covenant. So not only are they being selfish, but they are being directly disobedient. And all of their decisions show no regard for God's will, his word, his plans, or his purposes. And so the first The first sign of compromise in our lives that I want to point out to us here is that we have compromised truth for self-fulfillment when we value selfish gain over obedience. When the truth is clearly laid out for us, but we are willing to ignore that for the sake of fulfilling our own selfish desires, we can be sure that we have compromised truth for self-fulfillment. And this is a a dead giveaway, pun intended, that we are simply seeking to justify our own actions rather than submitting to what the Lord has revealed to be true and right and good. When all we can think about and focus on is what benefit we will reap, we are going astray. Because the adverse is what? that we weigh every decision based off of the truth of God's word. And that is not what comes easy. That is what, not what comes natural. But not only that we base every decision based off the truth of God's word, but we do it especially when it comes to sacrificing self-gain. That's the call of God's people. That's the call of the gospel. And that's the call of the church. Sacrifice that which would build your own earthly kingdom for that which glorifies God and establishes His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what the children of Israel The tribes have been called to do. They've been led through the wilderness, had their every need provided for. God's very presence in a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. Not only that, but as we see earlier on in Numbers, He tells them exactly how to camp around the tabernacle so that His presence will be in their very midst, literally and spiritually. And here they are. As God is saying that He is doing this for the purpose of fulfilling His covenant with their father Abraham, they say, don't take us beyond the Jordan. We're good right here. Like, y'all go on, fight that battle. But what we have here is all we need. And so we continue. We look again there verse 3. So the, the people, that come to Moses and they say, and they lay out like all these things, all these uh, kings that have been uh, destroyed in the midst of this, uh, these, these lands, and the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation is a land for livestock and your servants have livestock. So here we see that rather than considering what is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, what it is that the all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing Lord has commanded and promised and provided, the only perspective these tribes consider is their own. So again, try to wrap your mind around this. The only way that they have gotten to this point The only way that their livestock has survived to this point, the only way that they have survived to this point, is because God has provided their escape out of Egypt. He's provided water for their thirst, bread for their hunger, atonement for their sin, His very presence leading them and dwelling in their midst. Yet they don't consider maybe what what He has for us over there might be even greater and better than what we can see right here. And, you know, we'll we'll laugh and we'll mock sometimes because we'll we'll talk about the children of Israel, the nation, and all these silly decisions and these things that they do. Like, how do they not see it? And then we'll we'll go ahead and in our own lives we'll do the same thing. Is that we'll we'll set we'll settle For what satisfies us here rather than realizing that what he might have for us down the road might be far greater and better should we submit to his will and walk according to his ways. And that brings us to the next thing. Signs that we have compromised truth for self-fulfillment. The first one was we value selfish gain over obedience. The second one is that we place too much stock in our own perspective. We value our own perspective over the perspective of an all-sovereign, all-knowing, provident God. And this one, as I said, is all too easy. It's all too easy for us to rely on prudence over providence. What's prudent says we've got livestock. Livestock, the, the land here is good for livestock. Why do I need to go all the way over there? Not knowing what's over there, not knowing who is over there and who I'm going to have to fight, why not just stay right here? Don't make me go over to the Jordan. See, prudence often outweighs providence in our sinful hearts. That we'll take stock of what God has blessed us with, we'll take stock of where He's brought us, the passions He's given us, and then will completely blot him out of the picture to take those things and only consider how we can enjoy the benefits. Well, I mean, it's God who gave me this desire. It's God who brought me here. It mu- so it must be God's will. Friend, how can you discern God's will when his word is collecting dust? He's given his word To the people here, he's told them exactly what it is that he desires for them to do and how he desires to fulfill his covenant obligation and in doing so, bless them beyond their wildest dreams. And yet, in their hearts, God's word has collected dust. And in so, in our lives, we'll say, we'll try to discern the realities around us without ever considering or referring to or even having God's word written. In our hearts. Who was it, again, that provided Reuben and Gad with their livestock? Who provided the water in the wilderness to sustain them and their livestock? The Lord. For what purpose? To fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham and establish for himself a people that would be a banner and a beacon for his name. That all the nations that they were going over to conquer and confront would realize who the one true God is. And what are Reuben and Gad's thoughts? Eh, we're pretty good just chilling here. Y'all go ahead. Friends, find these patterns in your own lives and kill them because they're there. What this story does is simply reveal some realities that have existed in our hearts from the fall. Now know, as, as we see, we continue reading there, verse five, and they said... If we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. And so I, I know what you're thinking. Why is it wrong for them to consult Moses? He's the anointed spokesman for the Lord. Outside of when the Lord addresses the nation as a whole from Mount Sinai, every word that comes from the Lord comes through Moses. So What's the, what's the big idea? Why wouldn't they consult Moses? Well, the issue is not in them going to Moses, but it's in their petition to Moses. Whose will are they petitioning to as they bring this petition to Moses? Notice how glaringly absent the Lord is from their request. Their request expresses no desire to seek out God's will, no desire to know if this breaks their covenant obligations, no desire to know if this brings them into sinfulness against God, no reference back to the last group that came and said, we shouldn't go beyond the Jordan. Their only concern is, Moses, do you approve? Like, if it be your will, do not take us across the door. It brings me to the third thing there, uh, third sign, compromise truth for self-fulfillment, and that is that the fear of man is greater than the fear of the Lord in our hearts. When the fear of man is greater than the fear of the Lord in our hearts, we can be sure that we're compromising truth for self-fulfillment in our lives. And this is a dangerous one because this one will cause us to compromise truth in the name of all sorts of things. This one will cause us to twist and contort truth. It'll cause us to to compromise truth in the name of love and tolerance and acceptance and being seeker friendly. It'll cause us to compromise truth in the name of wanting to preserve a relationship with a loved one, a brother, a sister. It'll cause us to overlook sin in the life of one another and to allow that sin to fester. It'll, it'll cause us to allow a brother or sister to stumble for the sake of us feeling better of having not hurt their feelings. This is why it's so dangerous. It can make us feel good like we're doing something noble. And again, that tickles what our heart wants. We want to feel good. We want to feel like we've done something. So we'll compromise. We'll we'll show a compromise in that we fear man greater than we fear the Lord when we compromise his truth. But that's just the problem. The only person that it's glorifying is us. So as Moses rebukes them, he appeals to their covenant responsibilities. So that's where we pick up. Verse 6 is where we pick up in Moses' response, which you can imagine is lengthy, (laughs) given the circumstances. Pick back up again, verse 6. But Moses said to the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? So the first place Moses appeals is to their familial and communal responsibilities and their commitments. That what they are doing is a sin against their own kindred. So he's going to kind of ramp it up here. He's going to start with this sentence because then every sentence after that is how they're sinning against the Lord. So he first appeals to their familial and communal commitments of how they are sinning against their own kin. And the next thing that Moses appeals to is their covenant obligations. So we pick back up there, verse 7. Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? So again, he's saying that their sin is going to lead to communal sin. Why does he know that? Because he knows their hearts. And because he's lived through this once already with the spies. Verse 8. Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and they saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day. And he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me." None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, To increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. So, in other words, the Lord takes seriously his covenants. What's funny here is that this would not have been a story that Moses would have needed to repeat right? You would think that the people would have it a pretty clear understanding. Why is it again we're having to wander around here in the wilderness? Didn't the Lord bring us out of Egypt? Oh, yeah. Our fathers were sinful, unfaithful, and didn't obey God's covenant that he had just set with them, even though he had proven himself faithful up until that point and brought them to that point. So this is not a story that, that would not have been well understood. But Moses makes sure to recount this story and not only recount this story, but recount this story in a way in which he points out how they are following in those exact sinful footsteps. So Moses opposes Reuben and Gad for fear of rekindling the Lord's anger. Israel as a whole has yet to faithfully uphold their covenant obligations. Yet God has graciously remained faithful. So again, he recounts this episode of the spies bringing back a faithless report. If you remember, the spies go away, and all, as Moses repeats here, all but Caleb and Joshua return, and uh, they say say that the land is good, like there's great produce, it's going to be great, but all the other spies, they say like the people are big, they've got tall walls, like there's no way we can overtake this land. And so he recounts this episode. And why is this important? Because this is the very disobedience that brought them wandering in the wilderness to begin with. And so this incident with the spies takes place back in in chapter 13. And if you'll remember, in that incident, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. Now He comes before God pleading God's grace. But why is God so angry with their sin at this this moment, in the moment of chapter 13? And why is Moses so fearful of their supposed disobedience right here? Obviously, it's because of the disobedience, right? But also because God will not allow his name to be profaned among the nations. The point here is that they're getting ready to take the promised land. So if, they, if God allows them, in the incident with the spies, to take the promised land, while over half the nation is fearful, unfaithful, and more afraid of man than they are of God, then what testimony of the Lord is that producing? What banner are they raising of God's glory? They're not. And the same here. Moses wants them to realize, like, look, if you do this, you're abandoning all of us. Be abandoned by the Lord. And that brought me to this statement that I want to make right here. To live a testimony of partial obedience among the nations is to defame God's name, not proclaim it. And that one should really challenge us and scare us. To live a testimony of partial obedience among the nations, so that's among people, that's among our culture, among our community. To live a testimony of partial obedience is to defame God's name, not proclaim it. And that's the next point on your outline is compromise must be confronted with truth because that's what Moses does right here. Compromise must be confronted with truth. Moses doesn't say, I guess if that will make you happy, and then try to live out the truth. He doesn't say like, okay, I guess I'll let you do that if that'll make you happy. And then he, he just tries to live out the truth of God's word in front of them in hopes that they'll change their mind, right? And how often do we do that, Right? Friends, this should open our eyes to a few truths that we need to see in our own lives. First of which is that we need those around us who will speak the truth of God's word into our lives. Those who know us to our core and who allow us to speak, who we allow rather, to speak truth into our lives. Especially when we don't want to hear it especially when we know the truth is going to be counter to what we desire. Second is that we must be ready and willing to speak the truth in love to those around us. So that's the, the two things that this highlights here: is A, we need people speaking truth into our lives, correcting us, rebuking us. That's what the church is for. And then second, we must be ready and willing to speak the truth in love to those around us, which of course means we must have the truth of God's love and word written on our hearts. We have to know the truth in order to speak the truth. We have to know the truth in order to live the truth. Written on our hearts, embedded in our minds, ready on our lips. So what do we see happen in this story? So in verses 16 through 19, we see the people uh, they come up with this compromise that, that they're going to set themselves up here. They're, they'll leave their, their women and their children here, and all their fighting men will go beyond the Jordan. Uh, they're not going to return to their homes until the land is taken. Uh, that We're not going to inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan. So they come up with this compromise, and that's what brings us to Are verses that we read at the beginning this morning. I want to read those for us again. Pick back up in verse 20. So after they list out their compromise, we'll leave everything here, we'll go, we'll help take the land, and then we'll come back. Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord, the war, so notice again who he's pointing them to and who, the, who he says they are responsible to and accountable to the Lord. If you will take up arms before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan. So, if you'll do what you were told to do, if you will be obedient again, before who? Before the Lord until who has driven out the enemies. Until he, the Lord, has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord. Then after that, you shall return and be free of obligation. Why? Because you fulfilled your covenant duties. You shall be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. So he says, in other words, if you will be obedient to what you were originally called to do, then the Lord will give you this land, but you won't have the guilt of sin over your head. So in other words, if you had walked in obedience all along and not desired to stay here without going forward and fulfilling covenant obligation, the Lord would have given you this already. He would have blessed you to go come back here. Be sure, uh, but, verse 23, but if you will not do so. So in other words, if you want to fulfill your desires, stay here now. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. So while it might seem good to stay here now, if you stay here now, it will not go well for you. But if you walk forward in the obedience to what the Lord has declared for us as a people, he'll bless you to come back here and build your homes here and and have your livestock graze here. In Romans, I'll ask you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. In Romans, as Paul is untangling the mystery of the law and grace... And making clear what Christ has done in fulfilling the requirements of the law for us. He also addresses what that means for Christian living. Like, how do we live in light of that fact? How do we walk, therefore, in obedience? What does obedience look like? This is what Paul addresses here. Romans 8. And he starts. This part of the letter in continuation with what he's been talking about is being released from the law uh, and how uh, the law was weakened because of sin in the flesh. And we say, he says here in verse 8, chapter 8 rather, uh, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So jump down there to verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, that is, who fulfill the desires of their own heart, who walk according to their ways, walk according to the ways of this world, walk in the sinfulness that we are born into. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. That sounds familiar, right? Like So those who live according to their own desires and hearts, that is what their minds are set on. How can I fulfill me how can i be the king of my own kingdom how can i satisfy myself today but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit of the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, in other words, you can find temporary contentment in the flesh, you can find temporary contentment in pursuing, pursuing the desires of your heart. But the reality that the gospel presents, the truth that the gospel presents, is that all of us have that sinful, fleshly heart and have set our minds on fulfilling our own desires and have set ourselves against God, and we can't even obey God's law or submit to it or follow according to it. And yet, God sent His Son and Christ and the payment that He paid on the cross has fulfilled our obligation to the law. Our legal obligation. Which means that we now no longer have the same heart. We no longer have the same mind. We no longer walk the same. So we no longer set our minds on fulfilling our desires, but rather we are intentionally driven every day by how can I glorify Christ? How can I walk according to the Spirit? Each and every decision is put through the filter of this biblical worldview of life in the spirit. So it's no longer, I'm going to try to work this out on my own, figure this out, but God, I need you to help me with this decision, for I can't rely on my own wisdom and discernment. How are you working out your glory in this decision through me? The final point there on your outline, true content is found in Christ. When we find content in knowing Christ and Him crucified, we realize that there truly is nothing else in this world that can nor will satisfy. That as much as we seek content by fulfilling our own desires, we somehow never find it. But when we are content in the complete work of Christ on the cross, We have all that we need. It also leads us away from a life dead in the flesh, full of self-fulfillment, into a new life in the Spirit, full of self-sacrifice. When we walk in that newness of life, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, then we realize that by our obedience to God and submission to His ways, we gain abundantly more than we could have selfishly desired. We no longer selfishly look at life from our own perspective, but rather through the lens of God's glory. Finally, our thoughts are no longer driven by how we might please man and abide by his standards, but rather we are so overcome by our sin in light of God's abundant grace that we set out by killing sin and glorify him in all that we say and do. If you look there to verse 32 of what Paul says here in Romans chapter eight, you see this thought continued because he, he takes this conversation and he continues it by saying that we are heirs with Christ, debtors no longer to the flesh or so live according to the flesh. And then he talks about how we might still experience sufferings in this present life, but there is a future Glory. And he says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. So while we may not feel contentment wholly in this life, that we find our content in what is eternal, everlasting, set before us. Because if we find contentment in what is temporary, which is this world, how disappointed will we be at the end? So he goes on to say, in verse 32, first he he poses these questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all So we can find and seek temporary contentment in this life or we can find abundant, everlasting contentment in Christ. So don't be so hungry for more that you settle for less. When our minds are set on the flesh, whatever pleases the flesh seems to bring content. Only for us to want more and more. We can be so eager to set... Uh, ourselves on this stage or that stage, so ambitious for our bank account to reach this level or that level, so desiring to do this or that, that before we know it, we've not even considered God's will in our life at all. And we can repeat that cycle day after day. For those who are in Christ, our content is not found in what we own, how much perceived worldly freedom we have, or who knows our name. Our content is found in knowing Christ and Him crucified. Because when we set our minds on the truth of the gospel, nothing else of worldly status will compare. Therefore, we are free from the obligations of the flesh in this world to be satisfied in whatever season of life the Lord has set us in. Whether it be season of suffering, season of grace, season of victory, whatever that looks like, whatever we're experiencing, we realize and we can be content that it's the Lord that's working in that. Free to be content in whatever He puts in our account. Free to be content. And that's what I want to challenge us with. is What drives your life? Are you content with being driven by your own desires? Or do you find content and submitting to the work of Christ on the cross and allowing His, as you walk by the Spirit, to drive you. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to enter our regular time of response. And I want to challenge you. If you're here this morning and you do not know the grace of Christ on the cross, if you have not submitted to that work, my prayer is that God is drawing you in this moment to respond accordingly. But this time, church, Don't ever consider this time as solely for those who haven't responded to the gospel. Because it's for for all of us to respond accordingly to how God has pierced us with his word this morning. So if you're here this morning, you know Christ. My challenge is to respond that you also respond accordingly. Whether that's through repentance, whether that's in praise and singing the song of the truths of his word... Whatever that looks like, I challenge everyone here this morning to respond accordingly. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you, God, that you have made yourself known through your word, that you have given us a set standard, and that because of our sinful hearts, we cannot please you. Because we cannot live according to your law, but yet you provided a way in Christ to satisfy the demands of your law. That we might be made right and able to walk in right relationship with you. So I pray, Lord, now that if there's anyone here this morning that has not submitted to that truth, has not... uh, Believed in faith in the work of Christ on the cross, I pray that you would move them to faith, draw them to yourself and to repentance and salvation. I pray for all those here this morning that are part of your church, that know your word, that know the truth, the the good news of Christ on the cross, that you would move them to obedience as well. That you would move them to... Sacrifice whatever selfish desires that they have been allowing to creep in and and to, to seep in, that you would help them to kill those things and walk according to the Spirit. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.